Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the CyberSense Power Up podcast. I'm Dr. Dustin Weissman and I'm a postdoctoral therapist in Calabasas, California, working at Neurosense Psychology, where I specialize in problematic internet use and internet addiction. And today we're going to be discussing gaming addiction specifically. And I want to start with this article from BBC. Uh, specifically BBC News, and it's titled Gamers Suggest Ways to Combat Addiction. And in this article, we have two former gamers. One of them is Mattis Mikus, and the other is James Good. So they took their plight to the British Parliament saying that we need to have some kind of limit on screen time because we know what it's like and we know how bad it can get. So they had this closed door meeting. There's really not too much that came out of it, except for the little bit of, I guess, what they brought in. Uh, They were suggesting a three hour a day limit for children. And this is fantastic. And if you listen to my, I believe it was my third episode of the Chinese government where I was encouraging us to have more of a global screen time limit for kids, uh, especially ages 12 to 18, that it really should be this, you know, three hour limit. And if it can happen, and it is happening, if we could have it here in the United States and other countries across the world, I think we'd see a huge cultural global shift for the better in terms of our attention span, our depression levels, our anxiety. I think uh, people can learn how to regulate themselves better with their screen time and tech use that we'll see just overall good things. Because the way it's been going, those who exceed those three hours a day start to get into that mucky area and can then have their gameplay go a little longer and a little longer and then all of a sudden they're doing eight hours a day gaming and that's what I get those are the people that come to my office who have fallen so far down the rabbit's hole of tech use it's really difficult to get them back up and with it when you take away the tech use you have withdrawal and the depression can have a huge spike Suicidality can have a spike. Aggression can have a spike. There's a lot of these things that just come back. But once you get past that initial phase, that's when you can really see the change. What would be fantastic is if we can get to the point on an international level where we don't have to even worry about people excessively gaming for X number of hours. Now, I do know that within certain games, if you're doing like a dungeon raid, it's four hours. And you need that much time just to complete one quest, essentially. So that might be something that game makers would have to work on in terms of not making it take so long for gamers to be engaged in this game and to allow them some kind of a checkpoint where they can come back the next day, or even require. Like, okay, you've gamed for two hours on this dungeon siege. Now, come back tomorrow to continue and unlock the next gate. Something along those lines. So I think if we can get game developers and government working together 
then we can really see just wonderful things in our future. So I want to talk about this article a little more in terms of what they showed as their breaking point and where they realized they were having too much problematic behavior. So in a section of the article, they titled College Crash, James Good talks about his uh, longest probably gaming episode. He said he went 32 hours gaming without a break. 32 hours. That's almost a day and a half. Uh, he has a quote saying, I was falling behind. My grades were slipping as a result of, my, of playing too many games. I didn't eat, sleep, or leave my room. I escaped my problems via games. End quote. What problems do you think he was having? You know, what what was he escaping? And that's a question that we, as clinicians and parents and friends, wonder about those who just fall down that rabbit hole, as I mentioned earlier, of games, and how the virtual world is more appealing than the real world. What problems are so difficult and scary in the real world? And one thing that I come across in my practice is the problems that we think we have in the real world are much less difficult than they are. So our thoughts about them blow them up out of proportion to what they actually are. So we get anxiety just thinking about what we might have to do. And then the anxiety builds up to be this astronomic level where it impairs us and it just seems too daunting. However, if we kind of look at just the first few steps of tackling the problem and we work on those, then we can build some momentum instead of looking at the mountain of the issue. And sometimes it's not even a mountain, it's just a hill. And I think it's so easy to just say, I don't want to deal with that, I'm going to go do something fun where I get this immediate satisfaction. You know, with delayed gratification, and the best common example I could think of is school, how we have to get through so many grades to get through so many, to each graduation marker, you know, getting through elementary school, and then you have a little graduation, middle school graduation, high school graduation, and then if you go on to college and graduate school, you know, there's a lot of these different milestones. Even within that, you have report cards, and before that, you have tests and test grades and progress reports. So just the focusing on the next level of it and I've also been seeing uh, kids coming in lately who have this just mountain of work they've fallen behind they're failing classes and they figure hey I, I'm so far behind it's not even worth trying anymore because there's no way I'm going to get caught up but by taking that mentality they're getting further and further behind and what they're doing is coping with that anxiety and depression by gaming so it's just this horrible downward spiral. And I think having these kind of limits can really help our youth and young adults focus better their time. So if they have these screen time limits and they can only do so many hours, they're gonna have to find something else to do. And I understand how difficult it is for parents to try to regulate it because Sometimes they're just not around, you know. Kids get out of school at like 2 or 3 o'clock. Parents typically get out of work at 5 or 6 o'clock. 
So kids are often, especially you know, teenagers, are at home and they have nothing to do. Or no one to tell them what to do, rather. So unless they have that structure, it's a lot of, you know, free play and whereas in the past they might go hang out with friends outside and be proactive and do different activities or if they're on it, get their homework done. They don't have that drive as much. There are still plenty of kids out there that do. And that is probably a large correlation with quality parenting and just knowing that they're cared for and loved. I'm not saying you don't care for and love your kids if you're not doing it. I'm just saying that in certain families it still does exist. This is not a, a global phenomenon where all kids are struggling. I'm really focusing on the ones who are doing it a little too much. So I'm just seeing it everywhere. Probably because it's in my field, and that's what's being brought to me, so I'm a little jaded. But I think it has gone up a lot, and having some kind of imposed screen time limit would be fantastic. Or even screen time and tech holidays. Those might be a little more advanced for anybody who's trying to just go cold turkey, who's using a lot of tech, myself included. But maybe having some parameters could just be helpful in terms of during the week, not using screen time more than two hours, weekend, not more than three hours, including uh, any kind of TV watching as part of the screen time in addition to video gaming, and having limits in terms of time of day, so no screens past eight, and plugging in a phone into a charger and having it just away at least one hour before going to bed. So there's lots of little things like that you can do. Also making a habit of or breaking a habit of checking your phone first thing in the morning. I know that it's very tempting, and I do this too, looking at what I miss over the night when I was sleeping, or what's my schedule for the day, or whatever it might be. But just giving yourself five minutes in the morning, or whatever amount of time you feel is good for you, to have a tech-free start to the day, and not having a screen the first thing that you see when you wake up. And this is not just you, but anybody in your life. So that's something that can be discussed with family, uh, friends, colleagues. So I'm going to take a little break and get my next article ready for you. When I come back, we're going to be looking at an article titled How Playing Video Games Affects the Brain, and that's from medicaldaily.com. And it's from November of last year. So sit tight. Okay, let's take a look at that article now out of medicaldaily.com titled How Playing Video Games Affects the Brain. Some really good points I'm going to highlight from this article. And it's actually a pretty short article, so the main points I'm highlighting are most of the main points in it. So one thing that they said, and by they I mean the author, Sadhana Baranidharan, uh, said that Dr. Yawen Sun, a diagnostic radiologist at Renji Hospital in Shanghai, notes the role of impulse control which is needed to resist temptation. And there's a quote from Dr. Sun saying, Men have shown lower levels of impulse control in comparison with women, 
and their impulse control also increases more gradually. Young men may tend to experiment with pathological internet use more than their female counterparts. So when it comes to pathological internet use, that's just saying men have a hard time controlling their behaviors. And because of that, we're having this difficulty, especially with adolescent boys and young adult men, in them regulating or self-regulating their technology or gaming use. That's why we're not seeing as many female gamers that are addicted as we are male gamers. However, in my personal research, my study had, I think, 45% female from my sample population from an MMORPG. And if you don't know, that's massively multiplayer online role-playing game. So just some information. Another highlight from the article was that it said Dr. Michael Fraser or Fraser from New York believes that high school students who suffer from anxiety, depression, and learning disorders are at high risk. I have to add, any anybody who's suffering from anxiety, depression, and learning disorders is going to be at high risk for multiple things. But it makes sense that they're going to be at high risk for problematic internet use or gaming addiction because when you're depressed, you don't want to, or you may not want to leave the house or get out and do things. It's a lot more energy to required, or you feel like you have less energy to actually go out and do something. So it's so simple just to pull out your phone or your gaming device and just sit there and do it. Uh, also with anxiety, going out may be a very anxiety-provoking activity. So by just saying simple, safe at home, you can easily engage in it. Dr. Fraser goes on to say that this is why some experts tend to classify excessive gaming as coping mechanism for underlying mental health struggles, not a disorder by itself. That's really important. So it's saying that when they have one of these disorders, anxiety, depression, or a learning disorder, that the symptom is being managed by the gaming, not gaming being a problem in it of itself. I think that is how it could start, that it could become a coping mechanism. However, if we look at, let's say, opioid addiction, you know, opioid addiction might start from chronic pain. Now, somebody who might overdose or have problems with opioid addiction, they're not going to necessarily say, oh, they had chronic pain and that's what they overdosed because of. No, it's because they were not able to or had difficulty managing their opioid use. So with any kind of addiction, I think once the behavior exceeds this certain threshold and becomes problematic, then it can be an addiction. Anything theoretically could be an addiction if you're doing some activity or behavior in an unhealthy way. So that makes sense to a certain level in terms of what Dr. Fraser is saying that it is a coping mechanism. And I think it is a can very easily start out that way. But it's important to recognize at some point it becomes a problem that, yeah, it might be masking an underlying problem, but it needs to be addressed. So some German researchers, uh, this is also in the article, 
conducted an experiment and found no link between violent video games and long-term aggression. And this is one of those things that people think, okay, these all these shooter games out there, um, what's that doing in terms of aggression? Is it desensitizing people and is it making them less, uh, more aggressive or is it just making them less empathic? And this, the research on this keeps going back and forth in terms of different angles of approaching it. But the one clear correlation I've seen when looking at the research says that there really isn't a link between violent video games and violent behavior. So if somebody's playing a violent video game, does not mean that they will become a violent person. So if your kids are playing Fortnite or Call of Duty or Halo or whatever game it might be, it doesn't mean that they're going to go and start shooting people. So for whatever that's worth, you can <laughs> relax on that end. Um, however, I might want to include that somebody who's likely to go and become violent or is a violent person, they might be drawn to those types of games versus other games. They might not. So you could see that you know maybe five people who became shooters, they played these games. Okay, well, that's five people out of, what, 200 million? So just because they're playing it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to become violent. Those people may have already had serious struggles that got them to that violent act and behavior. So there are some positives that this article highlights, which I love, and I want to share those with you. One is that video games can have positive effects on the brain, and they go on to say, games like Angry Birds, in moderation, very important, in moderation, can promote relaxation, improve mood, and reduce anxiety. So yes, it can help the anxiety if it's done in moderation. So that means cutting your screen time down under three hours. So shooter, adventure, and strategy-based games can actually help improve reaction time, spatial awareness, memory, reasoning, and other skills. Of course, games can also provide an interesting medium for teachers and students to use in the learning process. We see this a lot with games being used in school, so school-based learning I know my daughter, and I think I may have mentioned this in the past, she plays a game called Prodigy, which teaches her math skills, and that's through the school. And it's basically an RPG, or role-playing game, where she has an avatar that she controls in this world and moves around the map and does quests, and on each quest she has to go and find certain things, and to do that she encounters other people or monsters that she has to battle. And to do her battle, she has to solve a math problem each time she does an attack. So it incorporates that. And I think that type of game has existed for a while. And there's also non-violent games that are math-based. She does Lexia, and in the past she's done IXL, which is more of an app, not uh, gamified. But there's lots and lots of games out there that are for learning how to improve math skills, language skills, activities of daily living such as brushing your teeth and washing your face and brushing your hair. Uh, so there's really a good plethora of types of games for real life transition. Uh, and then the last thing from this article I want to share is a game they mentioned called Crystals of Kador. 
K-A-Y-D-O-R, and says it can help children become more empathetic. How great would that be if our kids become more empathetic and just learn empathy skills and increase their awareness by playing a video game? I mean, that's that could be fantastic. And the article does mention that they are going to look at using this game to help with autism. Um, I don't think it's been done yet, but it's something that they're considering. So how wonderful if we can incorporate games into our treatment and our development. I'm all for it. And I know there's a group that I'm in that loves this too, and they do video games and board games and so forth in their therapy as well. So as long as it's in moderation, it can really have positive, wonderful effects. But it's when it gets to be, you know, four, eight, 12 hour sessions that it becomes really problematic. So that is all for today and this discussion on effects of video games on the brain and limits. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me or comment below. Thank you.